Okay, welcome everybody. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we uh, thank you and love you and seek you, need you, and uh, gather together this morning for uh, study of the word, fellowship, and uh, increase our faith, which increases our love and the application of it. And we just pray that you will help us to understand your word and the concepts and principles that you have for us today. Uh, reach us collectively, reach us individually, and prepare us to be better Christians. So we, uh, we humbly uh, present this uh, short time we have together to you, praying your spirit will be with us in abundance. Help those who uh, wish to be here but can't for whatever reason. Bless those viewers at home who tune in and watch the archives, our uh, home church, wherever those people may be. Uh, we welcome them and, uh, and just pray your blessing upon uh, this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. One, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is no one who does good, no, not one. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is no one who does good, no, not one. To his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Bye. 
Of this 
this present time. I'm not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be There we go. The design of the chapter seems to be a continuation of the last 14 verses of chapter 1. And, you know, we know that since the Bible wasn't written, this was all one letter, just pages of text. There was no break with anything. In fact, very difficult uh, to probably read that way. Uh, but in the last chapter of 1 that we've broken up as chapter 1, there was a, a whole idea about how God doesn't appeal to the strong and the wise of the world to accomplish his purposes, but he uh, uses the weak and the broken to uh, do that. So let's continue reading uh, at verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'm going to emphasize some of the key terms Paul assigns to his own person here. And he says, speaking of himself, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Okay, so in, in verse 1, we see that Paul doesn't hesitate. They're having problems here in Corinth, but he doesn't hesitate to begin by calling them brethren. So, brothers, I want you to recall that when I came to you, and he is comparing his apostolic ways with whomever has introduced some other ways to the church. There are people there who have introduced some opposing ways, maybe some wisdom of the world ways, and he's saying, listen, I want to compare what I did when I came to you. So when I came at first to preach the gospel at Corinth, I came not with excellency of speech. And this comparison seems to support the last line of what we call the first chapter, where he tells them that God doesn't use the mighty to accomplish his will and his purposes, 
But he says he uses the mighty to confound, to confound the wise. Now, Mary asked me, uh, what does that mean that God uses the weak to confound the strong and the, and the debased to confound the socially powerful, etc.? That word translated confound in the King James comes from the Greek katahiskuo, katahiskuo, and it's a compound word by taking ahiskuo and kata, kata ahiskuo, and combining them together. And so the prefix kata means to take down, something coming down. The Greeks talk about in life, sometimes people will experience catabasis where they start at the top of life and they have a catabasis where they go down, 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 down. And uh, so kata means down and ahiskuo means to shame. So we have to shame down or to bring down with shame. There is the meaning of the Greek word for con- translated confound. Confound's not really a great word because it means to kind of, uh, you know, uh, bring in uh, questions and, wow, I don't really understand that, but the kata ahiskuo means to bring them down with shame. And uh, so what Paul is saying is that God uses the weak to bring shame down upon the mighty, and he uses the debased to bring shame down upon the strong. So in my estimation, there's kind of two ways we could look at this occurring in life and afterlife. The first one is here on earth. And, you know, in our natural world, the mighty typically aren't, conf- aren't brought to shame by the weak. So that's you, probably not the best application of it. But within the body, in the natural world, it doesn't happen. But within the body, that can happen. Where as a group of believers, we are kata ascunio, ascuno, brought down by the simplicity in Christ that is among other brothers and sisters. That happens to me often. I'm sitting there in my lofty ivory tower of intellectualism in the morning, looking at the Greek and reading what this person has said and, and all this stuff. And I meet a vagrant who is, uh, you know, loves the Lord. And they come and sit down and they're broken and they're this and they just, I love Jesus so much. That is the kata ascuno that brings me down to shame to think, you know, you know get, bring us back to reality. So I think in this life, we can experience that, that God will use the weak to confound or uh, uh, bring down to shame the mighty. The other place where shame comes down upon the mighty of the world from the humble uh, presence of the weak may be after this life that when all things are made apparent, including maybe some of the futile things we have done with our existences, that when we really see what this life was about, and we compare everything we thought it was about in an eternal stance to those who knew what it was about and were broken and weak, we could experience kata ascuno. Um, I just read the other day, I heard that David Cassidy one of my idols when I was a kid. Uh, I know you'd think it would be a female, but I love David Cassidy. Uh, His last words on his deathbed to his daughter were, so much time wasted, so much time wasted. And then he dies. That's kind of a bringing down upon, you know, you know. And then when you compare people who wasted so much time 
relative to this life, uh, to those who really did uh, focus their time and attention on things that were eternal and important, there could be that kata skuno downward of it. So, uh, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, things that the Greeks just adored. And uh, pay attention after I'm done preaching. Danny's going to bring something he brought to my attention before. It's really interesting, directly in relation to this. And we were, it just came up in his mind, something he just discovered. But he said, the Greek, with excellency of speech, when I declared unto you the testimony of God. Now, when I gave to you my witness, Martyrion, my witness of God. Well, what was Paul's witness of God? And you can ask yourself that kind of rhetorically. What is your witness of God? And it might surprise you, Paul's uh, uh, martyrion of God, his witness of God, is Jesus. And that would be ours too. Our testimony, our witness of God, the invisible God, is Jesus. And it's a fascinating thing when you think about it. Jesus was called the Word of God made flesh, right? So we have words relate things to things. Words describe things. He's the Word of God. Jesus describing God. Uh, Words direct. Words communicate. Words convey. So when the Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, that flesh of the man Jesus Christ, born of a woman, made under the law, a Nazarene of Galilee, God's only human son was an earthly witness, the word made flesh, speaking who God is, what scripture calls the invisible God. That's why he's our witness of God. We know God by knowing him. And that's how he's our uh, intermediary between man and God is Christ Jesus. Because the word became flesh and he began to describe what God is and who he is and what he would do. In other words, Jesus, the word made flesh, related what scripture, who scripture calls the invisible God. That's what scripture calls God. I didn't make it up. The invisible God. He describes him for us. Paul declared Jesus Christ, his witness of God. He said, Jesus Christ was born. He didn't say that, but it's in there. He was raised without sin. He lived the life that God would have us live. Uh, He died a death that God would have us die. He resurrected and he rose to the right hand of his father and prepared to return with judgment and reward on those people. No excellency of speech is required to describe this. When our witness is Christ Jesus, He is our witness of who God is, right? So Paul adds at verse two, for I determined, here we have, this is a, this is a, a, what do they say in crime when it's a, uh, something you do on purpose in advance? This is a premeditated choice of Paul's. For I determined not to know anything among you, there at Corinth, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? So I made a deliberate, premeditated resolution, a cognitive choice that was fixed in my mind when I came to you. That's what he says there. I was not going to know, let's, let's read that word, anything. 
anything uh, among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's witness of who God is. It's really interesting when we think about it. Later, Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, if, you, if you're following along. He says, though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. This was my rationale when we first started ministry to Calvary Chapel people. I would use these passages to say, well, what's with born-again Mormon? I would say, do you remember what Paul said? That he, he makes himself available to all men. He becomes what all... So Paul continues, and he says, unto the Jews I became a Jew. So I would say, unto the Mormons, I become a Mormon. Oh, no, you get... Come on, look what Paul did. And, and uh, that I might gain the Jews, Paul says. And then he says, to them that are under the law, as under the law. And that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law. Being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ. That I might gain them that are without the law. And then he says, to the weak I became as weak. That I might gain the weak, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. He throws religion and all of its practices and all the games and all the, we have to stay this way, right out the window with these words. To a biker, he became a biker. To a scotch drinker, he became a scotch drinker. Whatever it is, because Christ is taking care of sin, we don't need to worry about all that stuff. Paul tells us right there, to a Mormon, I went to the sacrament meeting. I sang their songs. I took their sacrament. They don't want you to. And whatever it is, I became that so I might reach some for Christ, right? And he says, and this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you, all right? But note something. He does say all men here, but Paul does not include to the Greek rhetoricians, I became a Greek rhetorician. He doesn't include that. He says to a Jew, to the weak, to those under the law, uh, to this, I became, and he does say to all men, but to, and, 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 and Danny's going to bring a point out uh, in, in a minute that what Paul, why Paul probably doesn't include to the Greek scholars and to the rhetoricians, I became a Greek rhetorician. Why do you suppose that is? I would suggest that when men allow themselves to be drawn in to this style of thinking and speaking, that I think the truth will almost always elude us. Um, therefore, Paul purposely says here, he decided not to become a rhetorician to the rhetoricians, even though he has admittedly said, I have become all things to all men. That might be a stretch, but when he gets to Corinth, we see, he says, look at all I preached to you. And this was the center of, of Greek thought right here in Corinth. This place where so much was going on. He said, I didn't know anything but Christ crucified. The quagmire of human wisdom and Hellenistic logic can serve as such an opposing force to the gospel light that I think Paul understood that, and he wasn't going to use those means to get involved with those people. In my lost years, I call them my lost years, probably two decades almost, I sojourned around in the philosophies of men like you can't believe. Just as much attention uh, to the scripture and to Christ now that I put in, I was putting into understanding uh, 
uh, French literature and, and then especially Greek philosophy. I really was steeped in it. And I got so lost in my fleshly brain, because this is where it kind of leads, that I became a nihilist, which means that I really don't think anything has value in this world at all. Not even, nothing has value. Not marriage, not my kids, not me. Just, just fall over and die because nothing has value. Paul, realizing the ending perils of this type of thinking, chose to come to the believers at Corinth with no inclination toward their ways. He humbled himself down and was willing to be seen as a fool for Christ. Determined, he said, not to know anything among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. God made flesh, lived life, crucified. That's what I know. That's what I preach. In other words, we want to be seen in social circles as smart. And we want to be able to hang with the best of them in realms of philosophy. Some of us do. There's, there's pride in knowing uh, Kant's deontological moral theory. Such pride. Even to say that, I sound so. Kant's deontological moral theory says... You know, when you bring that up, boy, you are just starting to feel good, aren't you, right? And uh, we, want to, we want to understand Hegel and Wittgenstein, and we want to bring these things into our knowledge of the gospel. Uh, and in our day and age, I'm going to tell you from firsthand experience, sitting down with pastors of late, that that has infiltrated the way we are relating with each other. Uh, years ago, we had a kind of a confrontation right here in this building, and I had a pastor get up and say, you need to study Greek philosophy. That's what he said. That's our problem, is that we are approaching things with this intellect rather than Christ Jesus and him crucified. Nothing wrong with learning philosophy. Nothing wrong with a using uh, skills of logic in your job and in th if you're an attorney to be able to do this or whatever it is, nothing wrong with that. But when we bring it into the gospel and to what this place in this church is all about, we begin to get really muddled up. Uh, so Paul says, I was determined not to know, gnosko, anything except Christ and Christ crucified. There's Paul knew that the Greek way was limiting them. And he seemed to know it from the get-go. Uh, Derek and I met with two pastors a few weeks ago, a month ago. The first thing out of one of the pastor's mouth, he was brought, he wasn't the senior pastor, he was brought by the other senior pastor, was uh, an appeal to the tools of rhetoric. I mean, the first thing, uh, let, 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 me, let me just ask you some questions, if I might, was kind of the approach. And I could see it because of where I had studied before. And, you know, they start throwing out terms like you'll see this online, too. Circular reasoning, straw man arguments, uh, logical fallacy, red herrings. These terms are all part of logic. They're not bad when it comes to what we have to do in this world but they are not good when it comes to our ability to talk about Jesus Christ crucified. So uh, I believe that as a result of his implementing this determined approach, Paul says at verse three, 
So I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's how he put it. So we know from Acts 18 that Paul was in Corinth for at least a year and a half. Apparently, he was never comfortable there in terms of maybe his safety or acceptance because he says, asthenia means I was without any real strength there. And I was phobos, meaning I was exceedingly fearful of, of what was around me. So much so that I was traumas shaking with fear. In my limited mind, I used to think of Paul going about these newly established mission fields and just, ah, this and that and, and, and reasoning with them through all these, his great mind. And we're getting a different picture here. It's cleaned my mind up on that and having studied this now. We remember that even Paul, though Paul is a tremendous writer, uh, that in 2 Corinthians, and I said this last week or two weeks ago, it says, Speaking of Paul, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. Probably, and I mean this with all respect, this is what he was, a scrawny little Jewish man with bad eyes. His bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That means he... he I mean, remember Moses? He stuttered. He even told God, look, don't make me do this. Let me have Aaron as my mouthpiece. And God's like, I'll give you your words, Moses. No, give me Aaron. He's like, okay. Aaron, do the talking. Aaron, Mr. Eloquent, bring him up. But you know what happened with that. His leadership caused them to then follow after a golden calf. But God let him do it. So Paul, he wanders around Corinth, and he's contemptible of speech. He can't. He's not a big... Uh, orator, right? Uh, there in Corinth, in the exchange of the East and West, he was more like a, a church mouse amidst feral cats. And he was trembling and in fear because he had determined, I'm not going to engage with this group through uh, Greek uh, rhetoric. He knew how much the Greeks valued manly, elegant oratory. Remember the Greek age of the philosophers came 400 years before Christ. So it's been around a long time, so 500 years, no, 450 years since Paul gets on the scene. It has well established itself in the minds of those people. So they could argue all of that. But he knew that his approach would bring the truth, listen, to those with ears to hear. To those with ears to hear, he knew that that would do the trick there. And he also probably knew that going down the road of Greek rhetoric probably would never touch those with ears to hear and probably would do nothing with those without. In Acts chapter 18, relative to Corinth, the Lord came to Paul in a vision. This is what he said, if you remember. Be not afraid, but speak. Hold not thy peace, for I am with you, and no man shall set on thee to hurt you, for I have much people in this city. Paul, go and say the words I want you to say, and don't fear. There's a lot of people in Corinth I have. That's how he says, I have them. And, and I believe that's how it is with God's hand in this world. He has those he knows are his. 
And those who are his hear his voice and they respond, not perfectly. In fact, usually imperfectly. They're weak. They're debased. But they hear his voice. Here's the deal. When we are on God's errand, which is what we are on when we share, and that's not on everybody. Understand. This is not, it's only when moved by the Holy Spirit that you are commanded to share. You don't have to share because the Great Commission told the apostles to share. You share by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit isn't moving you to share, you don't have to do it. You're free in Christ. I have the sister missionaries pass me like every Tuesday morning in a troop of them. Hi, hi, you know, so friendly. Hi, hi. I've never had it. Uh, found it necessary to try to stop their whole group with their leader who's always so friendly to try to stop and share with them. Never. And I'm not going to do it until I do. And so we aren't under a compulsion. But when we share, we share Christ Jesus and we don't have to worry about being skilled in rhetoric. We don't have to worry about all the details we don't know. We say, I want to tell you something about my testimony of who God is. That is through a guy named Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. That's all I have for you. That's what you would share. And that message to those who hear gets through to them where the wisdom of the world will fail. Going all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, listen to what God said to Jeremiah. <coughs> Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then Jeremiah says, I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, say not, I am a child. Thanks, babe. Say not that I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whosoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, and to build, and to plant. That's what he told Jeremiah. Moving further back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, relative to Moses, God said, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he is it that doth go before thee. He will not fail thee. He will not forsake you. And then Ezekiel 2.16, God says to that prophet, And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. It's the wisdom of the world. Though briars and thorns be with you. Oh yeah, they're going to they're gonna stick their hooks in you with their words. They're going to hurt you. And thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, he repeats. Nor be dismayed at their looks, meaning their faces. Though they be a rebellious house. David wrote finally in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
You fear no one. You fear no one with the Lord on your side. And he says, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You fear nobody on this earth as a Christian. You fear the Lord God. That's who you fear. But you love others in his name. And you let him speak his words to those who are placed before you. I mention this because it's really normal to fear repercussions from the wise. They're really good with words. But trusting the Lord in his ways, there's nothing to fear. You may tremble, like Paul said he did. You may fear Phobos. He, does, he did fear. But I have scriptures that say you shouldn't. But you fear God, not man. Verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in, ready? But my words were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I didn't step forward with a great Grecian elegance using terms and words that would convince the masses of my intellect. He says, I did come forward in demonstration of the Spirit and power. All right. In other words, the meaning is the Spirit furnished the evidence that his words were of divine orig origin through powerful ways. Uh, the proof, the demonstration that the, the, which the Spirit furnished that I can see from Scripture was perhaps he did miracles. Uh, there was the gift of tongues, which biblically interpreted means somebody from one country comes to Corinth, Paul or another believer doesn't speak that language, but the Spirit allows them to, and somebody else interprets what is said to the others. That is the biblical interpretation of tongues, and, and he talks about tongues in this epistle, so I'm thinking he's talking about tongues too. And then there is the remarkable evidence of conversions. The remarkable evidence of conversions, that shows the spirits working. By those three things, I think Paul has said that it's the demonstration of the spirit and power. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.12, The signs of a true apostle performed among you with all perseverance are signs and wonders and miracles. A true apostle in biblical times of the original 12, add Paul as the 13th, Judas kills himself, Matthias is added. They showed they had the spirit with them and the authority of God by the miracles and wonders and signs that they evinced. We have talked about that through the book of Acts. They all did it. And that was not hidden. It wasn't too sacred to show. A true apostle shows they really have that authority from God by doing these miracles. Okay? So, that's the first thing. They did the miracles. In that day, now people will talk about, do we do them now? And I would say no, and there's a whole story on that, but we won't go into it. This was an apostolic age. Their course was to get those people ready and to show them that they had the power of God given to them by Jesus to convert. And it was followed up by signs and miracles, which the nation of Israel would have understood because they grew up on signs and miracles. The idea that tongues were spoken in Corinth is going to be covered in chapter 9 of this epistle. 
And so we know that he's probably talking about the miracle of tongues, where we have a, a French-speaking person come in here, and I can converse with them fluidly in French, and someone else can fluidly understand what's being said. That is the gift of tongues. And so that was probably going on. And then he has the miracle of conversion, which I believe is the thing that really speaks to us today. When you take the life of somebody, I'll use my, myself as an example, and it changes them from who they were, they still are that person in their, in their sin and evil, but it takes them from who they were in their focus then to a focus this way, that's a miracle of the Spirit. That can't be conjured up through rhetoric. You can't take a person's soul and change it through rhetoric but you can by the spirit and power of God. That's a miracle in our day and age. And so when we see that, we say, ah, we know that God is present in this. And then Paul adds, and this is a big one, the fifth verse and the last for today, that your faith, this is why he says he did that, should not stand in the wisdom of men. Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where your faith lies. The, the better Greek for this is that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men. From the literal uh, Greek. It shouldn't rest in men. Let me speak just for a second on that. When we look at certain occupations or, or avocations in this world, they're often based on preparing people to perform in the future. Uh, and, and, and unless you're prepared to perform in the future, then you haven't properly been trained. So a, a gymnastics teacher, for example, prepares their students to be able to execute things on the mat and on the bars. That's their job, is to take them and get them ready to be able to swing on those things and do everything. That, that's what gym, gymnastics is all about, right? So a teacher is to prepare her students for the next grade and the things that they'll learn in that grade. Uh, a professor is there to train their uh, students to move out into the job world and do their job efficiently and proficiently, whatever they're studying. So I'm convinced that pastors, reverends, priests, whatever, our job is to do everything in our power to lead congregates to what Paul says here in verse 5. To ensure that your faith does not stand in the wisdom of men. Does not. But in the power of God. So with having said that, you can ask yourself, does my faith stand in the power of God manifested to me either through miracles, which we don't have as much of in this day and age, through tongues, which is contextual with Paul, or through conversion? Does that exist in me? Does, am, does my faith stand in that? Or is my faith relying in the wisdom of men? To do this effectively, effectively is really not an easy task for a number of reasons, including the fact that we want to be told what to think and believe, and we want to be told what to do to be right with God. And so we automatically, just being natural men and women, rely on others to, to show us. Add in that there is a resistance to holy living by faith in this life, 
We want to live by faith and our religion that tells us how to live our faith. It's too radical when you tell people, you have a relationship directly with God, go to it, learn to have your faith established in the power of God. When you're told that, it's too frightening. We just think that's too radical. And so we readily accept and trust in things of the flesh uh, and that lessens our reliance on the power of God. It hurts us in the end. Knowing and seeing this, the faith is inundated with invitations for people who are seeking God to hang on to the wisdom of men and instead of the power of God in their lives. So if someone calls and says, you know, I'm having trouble making ends meet, I can say, well, we have a food bin or I've got a couple extra bucks. We can help you that way. Uh, or we can say, well, are you trusting God will provide? Now people mock that. Oh, yeah. Send them off with your prayers and don't give them anything to eat. Well, again, the Spirit's guiding. You help those you can. But the real thing that person needs to understand is, is your relationship with God so intact that you do trust him, that you do believe he will see you through, not just that problem, but any problem that you're having? What are you doing with it? I've been diagnosed with this. I have that. My child is this. I do that. Do you, are you willing to say, God, what's, what's going on between me and you? Tell me and not worry about what everyone else is trying to provide for you in terms of support or insight. It's so radical that, that we just don't do it that much. But that is really what the job of a pastor is, is to get people not to trust in the faith of men, but to trust in God alone. In my estimation, the number one thing pastors can use to get their people to trust in God is, of course, to, to teach and preach the word like this to show you this is what it's all about. I also think the refusal to provide the flock with worldly wisdom relative to their problems, but that to direct people to go directly to God. It doesn't matter what it is. Someone comes, I've committed adultery. No kidding. Wow, bummer for you and your wife. Go to God. Well, what, I'm trying to confess. What, who am I? Go to God. Go to your wife. You want counseling? That can work out, but have you gone to God? I can't get a job. What does God say? I don't know what to do with my life. What does God say? We don't do that anymore. We have job fairs, and we have counseling services, and we have rhetoric to teach people all these tools that they can use. God wants the relationship with you directly as his child. He wants you to talk to them, even as a father. I want to tell my kids, go to God. What's he saying about that? That's the only way to really prepare them to be Christians. My ideas are wrong. I'm crazy most of the time, but not with God. They can get and rely on that. That's a foundation they can stand upon. So when churches insert themselves, they are doing more of a disservice to people and what God wants from them, then, then, then they have the right to do. To supply the individual believer with religious crutches built on the wisdom of men is to deny the believer the ability to learn to trust and rely on God for everything. Everything. 
He wants us in his life. Personal relationship. Personal. Intimately. He wants our conversations with him. God, what is going on? I am messing up. This isn't working. My child is so screwed up. My marriage is falling apart. I'm sick. I can't pay my bills. He wants you to come to him. Just like Jesus had people come to him. And he provided them with miracles to events and show how God works. Go to him, right? He wants our prayers. He wants our worship. He wants the glory for his work in our life. But if we let things step in and take that place, then we glory the church. I couldn't get a job and I went to the church's job fair. I found the best job. I'm so grateful the pastor set up this job fair. And God is like, yeah, great job fair. You know, and and, and I take this so seriously. Human interventions, you know, are only... I mean, they're necessary. God uses us. That's, that's a whole, the other side of the coin. He can use you to work. But it's important that if you're being used to work on his behalf, that you as the one providing always says, it's God. It's not me. You help someone at the side of the road, not women, don't do it. Men, if you decide and you're led and you do it, it's God. It's not me. You give somebody some money. And they say, thank you so much. It's not me. I wouldn't give you a dime. This is from God telling me to help you in this circumstance. That's the way it, from Scripture, should be working, in my opinion. Jesus broke down the middle wall partition. What that means is when that wall fell at his death, and resur- at his death God made everyone have, had everyone have access to him. Everybody. So often our schemes put up a separation in some way. Paul's actions were to ensure that the believers at Corinth were not only not reliant on the wisdom of man, but were reliant on the power of God. So ask yourself again after that rant, do you have the power of God in your life? Do you know that power enough somehow to know he is there when the times get tough. Uh, A friend of mine built some site and it's called, Have You Experienced God? And it's a really good way to put it. That's the question, really. Have you experienced God directly in your life? Um, It's not surprising that the majority of people exiting Mormonism, which we have always called the greatest religion on the face of the earth, exit into atheism. Why? Because they have learned to associate God with what the church does. Priesthood meeting, leave society, sacrament meeting, temple, all this is church, 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 church. When you leave the church, you leave God. And so we've got a nation of atheists that are coming out of Mormonism, and the Mormonism sits back and laughs and says, see what happens when you don't follow every single thing of the Mormon church? People become atheists. And it makes sense because they've concocted a religion that is so self-sufficient, God is just barely mentioned except as an after effect to the end of prayers. You see, so that has to flow through to the Christian church as well. 
We aren't here for all that. We are here to lead people to, have you experienced God? That's the question for you here and at home. Have you? If you haven't, you stand on the sands of man. If you have, you stand more on that rock. And the more you experience him by giving him a a chance to work in your life, the harder that rock becomes and the firmer that foundation. So at verse six, we are going beyond that. And seven and eight, I'll just wrap it up with this. How be it, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, which the hit, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, this wisdom, they would not have crucified our Lord of glory." Okay, so let's work through these and we'll wrap it up. Go back to verse six. However, how be it, however, he says, we speak, talking about apostles, wisdom among them that are perfect is what the King James says. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. So this is sort of a wild statement here in the King James, isn't it? Paul has spoken against the wisdom of the world. And he says, however, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. That is a line in the King James that is troubling to people. Like Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect. You know, big one for religionists to use. You know, you need to be perfect. And you know what that means to us when we read that. But so while in other places, Paul does say he does not mind being considered a fool for Christ. Here he clarifies what he has preached. And he says, what we preach is not foolish. This is a wisdom, but it's a hidden wisdom that we are giving to people. The way the King James uh, reads, we speak wisdom to those who are perfect. Now that word perfect in the King James in Philippians 3.15, it says, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and if anything you be otherwise minded, God will reveal even unto you. So there the word perfect is used again in the King James. The Greek word is translated to perfect from the Greek, uh, from the Greek word teleos. And uh, it better means simply, and does not mean perfect from sin, failure, anything. It means complete. It should say complete everywhere where it says perfect. Be, be complete. Okay, referring back to our diagram on the board last week where we got up into the upper realm where Jesus' beatitudes become applicable, uh, have those things in place. Somebody who has been poor in spirit, somebody who has mourned over life and their failures, somebody who is meek, someone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, someone who is all the way up to being persecuted. You have those in place. I think scripture could easily say this person is complete in Christ. They, they have those things. Very different picture from perfect that we're reading here in the King James, right? So when applied to Mantelios, there's a slight chance that uh, contextually speaking, Paul is referring to a heathen origin there in Corinth, where if everybody of the heathen pagan ways did all the rites and worship, 
uh, rites and rituals of the pagans, they were called teleos. So he could be saying, be you therefore equipped with all the rites and rituals of the Christian faith, which is faith and love. Doesn't mean baptism and all those things. He could be uh, applying to that just to give you that, that little uh, background into the text, but maybe not. He says, we, we impart to the mature in Christ, instead of perfect, the mature, the, the more complete or the complete in Christ, wisdom. Although it's not wisdom of this age, of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. So it seems Paul, he uses princes here in the King James. This wisdom is not like the princes. And I would say that he is talking about the Jewish leaders. He's calling them princes here. And I do that because in verse 8, he uses that word princes in association with those who put Christ to death. So I am pretty sure his use of princes and, and what he says here and listen, we don't do it like the princes of this age who are doomed to pass away. He's talking about the religious leaders. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, verse 7, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now, I think this passage is badly written. Uh, from what I can tell, the translators have added words here. The revised uh, Bible reads it this way, but we impart a sacred and hidden wisdom from God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That might be a better way. The clarification makes it seem that Paul is saying that his preaching is not a mystery. His preaching is clarifying and bringing forth that mystery. And it, that, that mystery was hidden by God over the ages. We proclaim the divine wisdom hidden in mysteries before the ages. Uh, so again, not saying that the preaching of the gospel is a mystery. That's plain. It's Jesus and him crucified. Uh, the doctrine was intelligent. It was easy to understand. It wasn't some far-flung thing. But he refers to the fact that that wisdom was hidden for the ages. Then speaking of the gospel, Paul says our last verse, verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have glorified, have, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's where he uses that term prince relating to the leaders of the Jewish uh, community. And uh, in, Ma in Matthew 15, 11, 5, excuse me, Jesus says to God, I thank you, Lord, Lord of heaven and of earth, because you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, it seems good in your sight to do this. We know that God placed a blindness over the eyes of the nation. And that blindness would not allow them to see. Now, this gets into a whole concept of predestination and, and sovereignty and free will. We won't even go into it. But we know from Scripture that a blindness was placed upon the nation of Israel that they couldn't see. And Paul says, had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord God, but they were blind to it. Interestingly, one of the reasons the masses didn't believe on Jesus is because the rulers didn't believe on Jesus. Okay? In, in John 7, 8, we have someone say, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? So none of our rulers have believed on him. Why would we ever believe on him is the thinking there. And this ought to tell us something important about independent thought. It ought to tell us something important that the masses 
don't always have the best handle on the way things should be. What's the same? Popular opinion is one of the greatest lies in the world. So just because the leaders don't have the opinion doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't. But again, it was particularly bad to follow the leaders uh, in, in that day of Christ because they had the gospel hidden from their eyes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were blinded. That's how he puts it. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away from them. <coughs> in the reading of the Old Testament, he says, which veil is done away in Christ? So he says, their minds, these princes were blinded, even to this very day that he's writing this, he says, it remains untaken away from them when they read the Old Testament. They can't see the Messiah when they read the Old Testament. They're blind to it. And he says, it remains to this day. How long will the blindness last? Paul says to the believers in Rome, he says, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part happened to Israel, Blindness in part, because we know some Israel did believe, did happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's what he says. Because of this passage and this view, many Christians today believe that the blindness continues. That's why the Jews haven't recognized Christ as the Messiah. And it continues out to this modern age. We're still in the period of the Gentiles and that when that period ends, when the last Gentile converts to Christ, the blinders will be taken off of the nation of Israel. The leaders in Israel will see who Christ was, and then all the promises that God has for Israel will be fulfilled. That's called the futurist uh, uh, eschatology. And it makes some sense when you just hear it that way. That, that, I mean, that resonated to me for years as a, a futurist in my eschatology of when Christ will return. The problem is there are 10 thousand other factors that don't support that futurist view. So you, in other words, you have to then say, well, uh, that period of the Gentiles was that short period of time and that came in and the blindness was ultimately taken off right at the end for all who would see to see freely and then the end came. But another uh, topic. Bottom line is Paul is simply is saying, listen, these princes were blind to the fact of Christ and if they hadn't been, they wouldn't have put him to death. All right, questions, comments, insights. Whoo. Oh, Danny. Share that, Danny. It's really good. Really good insight. Is that on? No, it's not on. We need this on. Here, take mine. It's not coming through. We need this on the for folks at home. Here. Okay. The devil is in. What did you call me, a devil? No. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, basically everything, you already covered what I kind of brought up but, uh, about Paul, but I was looking at Acts 17, 
where this week where Paul was in Athens and he goes up to Mars Hill and he meets with those intellect, intellects basically and he decides I'm going to really want to relate to these folks so you know he starts quoting from their poets and their philosophers and and uh, it's just got him into trouble because uh, not when you read the chapter he never mentions anything about Christ being crucified and paying for their sins he does allude to the resurrection in one verse I believe but mm -hmm. he really just misses that point and I think now as he's talking to the Corinthians he's like, oh man, I really blew it back then because never was a church planted in Athens. You guys hear that? Paul tried, but never was a church planted in Athens. They did, they had what? Did they even have converts there? I, I don't, don't even. I think can't they, remember now. I don't even think they had converts. Yeah, it wasn't effective. Yeah. And yet he was so effective in Corinth, you know. And then I was just kind of looking at the fifteenth um, chapter of First Corinthians, where he starts out and he just says. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I deliver it to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. And that's really, you know, when we get in conversations with the LDS or anybody else, sometimes we, I, I find my, I'm talking about myself here, that I tend to go to their church history and their teachings and their doctrines, and I want to I wanna break that down for them. And yet, I often, when I get done talking, I think, did I, was, I just kind of got in the way of that conversation where I should have just talked about, like you were saying, you know, do you know God? Do you know, do you know Christ? Do you know what he's done for you? And, uh, and that's so simple and so effective, more so than us just becoming very verbose with people and trying to impress them with what we now know as truth. And they're just not prepared for it. But we were also talking about, you know, pastors on the radio, they, when they preach, they have some good messages, but a lot of times they want to bring in philosophy and you know, do some of these other things. And R.C. Scroll just passed away, I think, yesterday, who was a, I enjoyed him a lot on the radio. But, you know, he was steeped in philosophy and these things that we're talking about. Great, me great message, Danny. Anything else? All right. Let's pray. Boy, we got a list here today. Good. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, and we pray that we can take in... Uh, what it says, what Paul is explaining, what uh, Danny mentioned, what I've mentioned, and see how it plays out in our walk. And we pray that we will be uh, uh, humble. We will walk by your spirit and, uh, and move accordingly. And uh, maybe back off a little bit on our own wisdom, maybe a lot, and rely upon you. And that, that central message of the gospel that, we, that Danny just read. We, uh, we pray for each other, Lord. We believe in the, in the power and purpose of prayer and mentioning people uh, in it to you uh, as service of our lips on their behalf, directly to your ear, part of that God experience we're talking about. And so we pray for Diana, healing of mind, body, and spirit, especially her leg, for our little Gracie, recovering from cancer, 
via chemo and radiation at that young age, and her parents who are dealing with that. Annette continued healing through her chemo. Mike, lung cancer, recovering from uh, surgery and future treatments. <coughs> Jarvis Green and his cancer, and uh, to be at peace. Uh, Lisa, to stay strong in the Lord. Taylor Godfrey, to heal from drug and drug addiction. From Kathy, to be healed of diabetes and keep her eyesight. For John Green with his weight and for Jarvis to have a safe flight home. We, we pray that uh, you will bless Lisa and the cancer she's battling. And everybody within the sound of my voice, those who are at home who are experiencing loneliness or feel trapped to addiction or whatever it might be, that will realize, Lord, you liberate. You freed us from sin. You took care of it. And to look to you and hope. We pray you'll bless those who are involved in preparing themselves in different things and that you will bless them and help them know that you have a purpose in their life and that um, that purpose is meaningful to this existence. And we just pray that you'll help all who are lost, all who feel lost. You'll help them to come to campus and be refreshed by the word and be encouraged in who you are. So we love you, Lord. We pray for this holiday season, a busy week here on earth with all the stuff going on. We pray for a lack of frustration, peace, and safe travels. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, one last thing. Sorry. And Lord, pray for Kathy Maggie. She buried her mom yesterday. We went, the funeral was beautiful, and her mom was, uh, we learned a lot about our sister Kathy Maggie from attending that. We pray you'll bless her and help her. And we also pray you'll bless Daniel and uh, what he's going through in his life, that he'll wake up and uh, he'll see that you are the king and uh, the things of this world are, will only take him so far. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, our Lord.